Hello, and welcome to the Northeast Oklahoma City Think Tank Podcast. My name is Xavier Roan. In this episode, myself and fellow team member Aaron McKnight sit down with Dr. Bryce Lowry to discuss a bit about food insecurity on the northeast side of Oklahoma City, his work in food systems planning, and what he describes as the future of food. We hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Xavier Roan, and I'm here with Aaron McKnight, and we're interviewing Dr. Bryce Lowry. Dr. Lowry, if you could introduce yourself, please. Sure. My name is Bryce Lowry. I'm an associate professor of regional and city planning here at the University of Oklahoma. Okay. So I guess my first question would be, what is food systems planning? So Xavier, food systems planning is a sort of a group of things that we concern ourselves with really in the, in the field of urban planning mostly, but it branches out into other fields, obviously. But uh, largely it's uh, focused on three things. One is uh, production of food, the growing of food, the processing of food, how we get food to people. Um, it's also interested in the distribution. So how do we begin to think about uh, getting food onto people's plates? How do we get it closer to where they live? Um, how do we bring it from farm to table? And then last but not least, I would say we think about consumption. How do we actually get people to eat uh, either healthier food or eat food in general in some cases? And so those are sort of the three primary components of food systems planning. From my perspective, I think what's really interesting is I focus mostly on local uh, food systems. Uh, there's obviously a scale of different levels at which we think about food, right? There's sort of a global food system that we ship bananas from Brazil, we move food all around the earth. Um, that's one, one place that we need to be focusing some energy. There's also then I think on sort of a state level, you know, here in Oklahoma, we think about, we are a beef producing state. And so our food is very much tied up to what we grow here. But uh, for many of us, I think for uh, this project in particular that you all are thinking about, it's a very local issue, right? We're talking about whether people living in their neighborhoods can get to the grocery store or grow their own food in their backyard. Um, where does the food that we eat come from? What's the quality of that food uh, on a local level and in local neighborhoods? Okay, so what got you interested in food systems planning? Uh, so I, I, I've been for most of my life uh, interested in public health. Uh, before moving to Oklahoma, I was really involved in public health uh, work in Los Angeles County. And so that's a county of like 10 million people. And looking at a, a number of different things, but a lot of my work was uh, focused on making sure we found out how to make sure people could live a healthy life. And so that was planning and thinking about anything from clinical locations, like where is your nearest hospital and your nearest doctor, uh, to things like, uh, how do you get there? Is there a bus available? Is there a train available? And so I've always been very much interested in thinking about how the built environment helps people live a healthier life. Um, my advisor at the time at uh, the University of Southern California, David Sloan, had a project working in a low-income Black community in Los Angeles. He had been doing many... Uh, 30 years or so of work there. And uh, they were very much interested in thinking about this idea of uh, what do farmers markets do in a low income community versus maybe like a high income community. And my work really uh, got launched uh, through a project looking at farmers markets. And we came to realize very quickly that even in uh, different communities, the farmers markets look so, so different, right? You would in, uh, in many ethnic and lower income communities, and not I'm not lumping those together, but you would see you know, a lot more prepared foods, uh, fat foods, fried foods. You might see fewer vegetables. You tended to find more arts and crafts. Whereas you would go to you know, a well-off white community and there was often robust selection of fresh fruits and vegetables. And so thinking about then if 
if we're you know going to say farmers markets are a solution to to obesity, diabetes, any of the sort of health related issues, is that really what they're doing? And so I began to think more critically about um, I think for one farmers markets, but also grocery stores. Right? We we often automatically think grocery stores are healthy, and in reality, eighty percent of the food at the grocery store isn't really healthy food. And so you. Teasing this apart became very interesting to me. I then moved to Oklahoma and realized that uh, here the problem is uh, so much different because we don't really grow any of our own food here. It really comes from different places. Um, in California, we were lucky to have the food very nearby. And so my, my interest here has taken a different kind of approach to think about like, what are we doing in Oklahoma when we see across the state the highest rates of obesity and diabetes in the country? Um, and I think the pandemic has made that all worse. And so I'm very interested in thinking on the local scale about what can we do to make sure people can, you know, take some control over their diet, uh, get access to healthy food, you know, still enjoy your snacks and your bad things once in a while, because we all like to have our comfort foods, but also, you know, how can we incentivize and encourage or nudge people toward a little bit healthier diet? All right, so within that same sort of realm, uh, during the food symposium, you defined the food desert and like the food options that are in the Northeast Oklahoma City area. Can you sort of briefly explain what a food desert is, of food insecurity, and like what, how that relates to food systems planning? Sure, Xavier. Um, so I have uh, mixed feelings about the term food desert. I think a number of people in my field do. Um, there are a number of uh, particularly black scholars now who come out and have started talking about how derogatory the term is. And I can see that, you know, I, I completely understand that we, we've got to be more nuanced about how we talk about these things. But I think for communicating to a lay audience about what's going on in some of these communities, a food desert really does kind of explain it well, right? It's a place where there just aren't any healthy foods available to people to buy. Um, I think more important than food deserts right now to me are, are you're, we're starting to hear the word food swamps being used. Um, and those are places where we find more unhealthy food than healthy food. And in many cases, what I'm finding in my work here in Oklahoma is that is a much more serious problem, right? A lot of folks who live in a place where they can't have food nearby manage, right? We're finding a lot of research that shows that People who live in these places are making do. They either are growing their own food and we don't know about it, or they're going to grocery stores outside their neighborhood to get things to help their families. And that's admirable, right? And so I don't want to take away from the work that they do to, to provide for their families. But I think we need to be mindful of neighborhoods where you see 10 or 15 fast food restaurants or $5 stores and no grocery store, right? That is an environment that is encouraging people, I think, to really... Uh, we make bad choices. I make bad choices. I go to the grocery store and I go there and I'm like, I'm going to get the really low fat, the healthy, this and that. But I, I always walk away with ice cream and potato chips, right? It's just, it's, I think it's in our habit to want to have some of that stuff. And so I'm not saying we're pushing uh, stuff on folks who live in these kinds of communities where they don't have access. But I think that encouraging options is a really good way to think about it. And I'm torn about food deserts and food, food, uh, 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 swamps. I think there's a, a lot more nuance going in some of these places. I think that there are families, you know, you, you, you think about some of the really incredible writing of like Bell Hooks, who talks about Black communities and the way that they pull themselves up and make things work, right? The home is this really center of culture that is a warm and caring place created by Black women 
to feed their families and take care of them and help them deal with racism. And I think that's going on. And so to say food desert, I think is sometimes uh, harmful. And so I try to be sensitive to that, but I, I also recognize that in many cases, people find it an easy way to communicate the, the issue that's really happening. So on that point of like encouraging options, uh, what would you say are like some of the factors that lead to a situation like Northeast Oklahoma City where those options aren't as readily available for the, the residents? Yeah, Xavier, I, I mean, I, it's so layered is the first thing I'll say. And I, I, I always hate to start here, but I think a lot of it is ultimately due to um, racism. Uh, unfortunately. I mean, I think if you know the history of Oklahoma City, if you know the history of really any American city, Black communities were often thriving in a part of the city that then when we brought freeways in, we of course sent those freeways right through low-income Black communities and said, oh, they're powerless. We'll just push them over here. And I can only imagine, because that's never happened to my family, what impact that has long-term on these communities. And so we begin to imagine a long history of oppression, uh, not really helping direct resources into these places after the fact. And I think today even still our planning community, people who do what I do are grappling with how do we reconcile this past history with what really needs to be done today. And I'll tell you, it's, it's hard. It's very, very challenging. You know, Luring a grocery store as I think uh, Councilwoman Nice has done in Northeast Oklahoma City is extremely hard to do. They have a very uh, exact formulas for understanding where they want to put a grocery store, how they'll make that work economically. And so, I mean, there's a, it's really, in my mind, so admirable, the work that's going on there. And this idea that we're going to kind of get two grocery stores in that community is, is going to be remarkable. And so the work, it continues. We have to continue to think about this as a racist problem that has occurred. And we have to continue to say there are communities where we need to be putting extra resources to make sure that we're fixing sort of the past oppression that has occurred. And I think that's what I see going on in Northeast Oklahoma City. I'm hopeful we'll start to see this in other Black communities, other Latino communities, other communities of color across the country. So you brought up, uh, you transitioned really well into the next topic. So uh, you brought up uh, Councilwoman Nice's efforts to bring in two grocery stores to the area. Can you touch on what you, from what you're understanding, that sort of process it takes, it takes to bring in a full service grocery store to an area? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I, she's a remarkable woman. I want to say that. I don't, I don't want this to become her celebrity hour, but um, she just has such a personable way about her. And I think it's really people power. I mean, I think, you know, you can negotiate with these giant grocers from afar over email, on the phone, on Zoom. But really getting, um, and, I, and I think Homeland deserves some credit as well as a, you know, I understand they're a, an employee owned business. I think that had a lot to do with their decision, right? That they saw what was going on. I think it's much more challenging to, to do these kinds of negotiations with a larger entity. And I, I won't name them, but you can begin to imagine who those companies are, um, who would need for this all to pencil out. They would need to make sure they were going to make revenue, that things were going to be happy and popular. And I, I just don't think that was going to work in this situation. Because if you look all around the perimeter of that community, there's grocery stores. They're just really far away. Um, and so I think in some ways, the, the move, the, the negotiations, the, you know, and, and as you all know, it was a very slow process. This is, I moved here six years ago. It's been going on since that time to try and figure out what is the solution to 
the store that used to be there that I, I remember walking into that store um, and I grew up in a very small rural community where our grocery store wasn't very nice either. But I walked in and I was like, this store isn't super clean. It doesn't have the kinds of products that I have in my store. Right. And so you, you felt the quality. And I think that Councilwoman Nice and the team of people who have been involved have been very thoughtful to try and think about like, how do we make this grocery store into maybe more than a grocery store, right? How does it become a focal point for this community where maybe there's other services that are nearby, wraparound kind of services, um, clinics could come into the parking lot, right? You're, I think she's being thoughtful about what can this be more than just a place for food and creating a culture around food that's very positive, which is a part of our challenge. So you're, you're touching on this like idea of the importance of a grocery store, both symbolically and from a functional perspective. Can you expand upon that and why it's so like critical that people have access to a full service grocery? Yeah, Xavier, I think, um, you know, I, I too had to learn this. I think I came into this process and into uh, Oklahoma really in general thinking grocery stores were very much the solution. And I think we often think that. Um, but, you know, talking to other friends in food planning, people who think about this, um, there is a, another level we should be thinking about, which is really, you know, sovereignty, food sovereignty for these communities, where the community is not only empowered to think about what kinds of food it wants, but it takes control of that situation. And in some ways, you know, creates jobs, creates economic well-being, um, maybe even reinvents the landscape so that the the streets that are underutilized grow food so that the foods are culturally appropriate and maybe even come from historical lineages of seeds that are important to the culture. I think the grocery store on some levels, when I talk to folks up there during the food symposium, you could see it in their faces how much they want this grocery store, right? Symbolically, it means so much. And I think it's gonna do huge things for the community, but I think it's this, the beginning of a larger conversation about moving, um, that community to a place where it's encouraging happy food, food that's grown nearby, food that answers to sort of issues that are there. And, you know, as I think I mentioned early in this uh, interview, we are shipping most of our food from far away. And to build a resilient community, you wanna have some things that I think come from nearby, that if our supply chains were cut off because of tornadoes or disasters, that community can still take care of itself. Right. And I think that's community gardens, that's farmers nearby, that's uh, the kind of stuff that Restore OKC is doing where they're growing, you know, stuff inside. That I think, I hope will be the next move for uh, Oklahoma in general, but in that community in particular. Okay. So I'm going to try and loop some things together here. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, so when it comes to like, you touched on it briefly, like you said, it was like a six year process of getting this grocery store in the works. So uh, my guess, my question would be is like, how, when it, why is it, how do I want to say this? Uh, how does that process, I guess, compare to like something more less healthy at a less healthy alternative, like a fast food store, like a Dollar General? Why, what are the logistics that make it so difficult for to make healthy options readily available for their community? Yeah, I think exactly, I, a lot of it has to do with sort of the perishability of food, the profit margin of food. Um, you know, a dollar store can go in very quickly because they don't have food that has to be thrown away. It's mostly frozen or canned, and you can run that whole store with one person, maybe two people. 
a grocery store often requires at minimum at almost all times five, six, seven, eight people because you'll need a couple at the register, a manager, some people stocking, and then probably people in the back doing a whole bunch of other stuff. And so the economics are slightly more uh, expensive. And then also the land, uh, a grocery store requires such a large plot of land in most cases, as you probably know, the, the site, the homeland has chosen is pretty good size. A dollar general can be snapped into a pretty small lot. And so I think the, the land value issue is, is part of that as well. The shipping, the uh, expediting of the food as well. I mean, we're talking about, um, when you're a grocery store, you're having to manage all these trucks that are coming with all sorts of stuff all the time. A Dollar General, it's mostly preserved food. And so if it's sat in a storage unit for an extra day, it's not going to go bad. Whereas a grocery store, you have to be constantly keeping stuff moving along. And I think that makes it very challenging for these things to pencil out in some cases. But I think in general, in big cities, the biggest issue is land value. It's really expensive for a grocery store to come in and buy up the land they need to do what they have to do. Um, we're seeing some movement in larger cities where we're starting to see uh, grocery stores coming in on the ground floor with apartments on top. And that really helps, I think, deal with some of those sort of expenses. But in a place like Oklahoma City, we're not quite there yet, right? We don't have that kind of living demand for that kind of lifestyle yet. But I think, you know, if we grow a little bit and we build up a transit system that can support more density, you can begin to see where we start to blend mixed use and that might make a downtown or urban grocery store more appealing. So on the idea of perishability, I think something that's super interesting when it comes to food is that often like the food that's the easiest to cook is usually the least healthy for you. And, and like in these communities, sometimes like the, the time just simply isn't there to sit down and prepare, prepare a meal. So why is it that you think that like, there's such a strong correlation between like perishability of food and like in the health of, of the food you're taking in? So Xavier, I'll just speak, and this is from me, but I've, I've heard this from others. I think that because so much of our food in Oklahoma comes from a far distance away, right? Most, most food I see here, most vegetables and produce are from Texas, California, or like South America. And so when I first moved here, I noticed immediately that you could tell a difference in the quality because that food has to be picked earlier to get on a ship, to get on a truck, to get on a train, to get to you. In California, we were getting stuff that was picked like the day before or two days before. And so it looked different. It looked better. I hate to say that, but it, it just looked better. And so I can, you know, I, even if you don't know how to cook, if you walk into a grocery store and the fruits and vegetables don't look very nice, you're not going to go, oh my God, I want to make greens tonight. You know what I, it, and so I think having a local food uh, production here in Oklahoma would do huge things for us just for the, the quality of what we get. Um, I think too, there's a, a, a lot to be said for people seeing food grow. Um, we're learning that when small children are exposed to gardening, they tend to value food more. When they, when they realize that meat doesn't come in cellophane, but it actually comes from a cow, right? They, they respect it all more. And so in some ways, I, I hope communities in Oklahoma will find a a place where they'll see some of their food being produced. And that might also bring up a generation of folks who want to explore it, want to cook it, want to see how it can be integrated into different uh, ways that we think about food. And I think that's also a huge challenge. So something that you brought up that I found interesting was this idea of like how appetizing your food looks being a barrier to like whether or not you want to pursue it. What would you say are like some other sort of like barriers that 
are generally there that stop people from wanting to eat healthy foods. Yeah, uh, I get pushback on this all the time, Xavier, but I'm going to say it anyway. We all have lost touch with cooking. <laughs> um, I grew up in a generation where like I came home from school and my parents weren't there and I had to let myself in and deal with the stuff and we didn't have phones yet because I'm older. Um, and we would pop stuff in the microwave, right? That stuff has a lot of preservatives. It has a lot of stuff in it that isn't, I'm not going to say it's, I don't know, it's unhealthy. Um, and I, I think in some ways, I, I'm going to sound really old fashioned here, but like we don't teach home ec anymore in schools. I didn't get a lot of home ec when I had to take it, but I think there is a need to reconnect everyone, not just a younger generation, but everyone to enjoying cooking food making food a part of a family event or making it a part of uh, our social life that is fun again. And I, I think like I, I became super interested in cooking when like the food network became big. And I think that was a, a, a small segue, but I think we could be doing more. And I will say in sort of like what's going on in that world, there is a big movement now to improve uh, test kitchens in health departments. I know our health department here in Oklahoma City has a kitchen that can be used to show people how to cook food. I think the, the growth in uh, interest in cooking, uh, particularly I've, I've noticed a lot of little kids cookbooks and TV shows for children to learn how to cook. These are all going to benefit us eventually, right, to, to reconnect to this ability to make our own food. and. Uh, I think that will have huge implications for sort of the future of what we, we do and how we eat. I think that that's so on the money. And there's a there's an old Seinfeld sketch about like him discovering the, the frozen orange juice and the Pop-Tarts for the first time. And I think that really just sort of embodies it. They're like, everybody's on the move. So like sometimes yeah. it's like the quickest thing is the best thing for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, Xavier, I think the one thing that is really interesting to me that's happening is that some of the food makers are understanding that prepared food needs to be healthy and we're starting to see more options. And I think that's also really, really good. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, no, you're fine. You're fine. You're the guest here. Uh, <laughs> so I was shifting gears a little bit. Uh, so we touched on it briefly early, earlier, the two grocery stores that are going coming into the area. Do you think that these will help uh, remedy some of the, these issues we're seeing with food security and food sovereignty in the area? I do. Um, and this is from a multi, uh, multi view perspective, because I think on one level, there will be more food available. Um, but I think on a couple other levels, there's something really important that's going to happen to that community because of these things. One is that I think that you're going to get some outsiders coming in to buy food at that grocery store. And I'm going to be real honest with you, Xavier. I meet a lot of white folks in Oklahoma City who don't even know that part of the community, right? They, they don't go over there. It's not something they ever experience. And so it's like they need to know. Like the difference between Northeast 23rd and Northwest 23rd is so striking. Everyone needs to see that. Um, and then two, I think here in Oklahoma, uh, groceries are taxed. And so there's a huge economic tax base that comes with a grocery store that I think will help to feed a little bit of the sort of economic growth in that community as well. And I hate to think of it as becoming, you know, grocery store gentrification, but I do think that um, that economic power will help lift that neighborhood. It, it draws more businesses, right, to have something like that there. And I think that there's gonna be some other benefits beyond just the local food. I also love the idea, and this is from a planning perspective, of people walking and biking to get groceries. That to me is a double win for someone like me because it's exercise plus good food. And so having a grocery store nearby, we tend to find that 
particularly for those who don't have car access, uh, elderly and teenagers, a local grocery store is extremely important for them. So to expand upon that a little bit, you touched a bit about like what you see, like the potential victories of having a grocer being, would you care to expand on that any? I'm kind of curious to hear what your thoughts would be besides just like the idea of it being local and accessible on foot and bike. Yeah, well, I mean, I my understanding is that Homeland is going to be fairly robust. I mean, if there's a butcher there, a bakery, right, these are all things that uh, I think will help people round out their palate, be able to get to things they need. I'm hopeful that it will offer uh, unique items that are of interest to the community there, right? It's going to be a pretty good grocery store. I, too, have started looking at grocery stores as sort of a physical presence in communities. I don't know if, you, if you've ever just stepped back and looked at a grocery store, um, they're a parking lot, right? And so I hope there's going to be some uh, pressure, maybe I'll put it that way, to think beyond just a concrete parking lot. I hope the parking lot has some trees in it. I hope maybe there's off to the side, maybe there's a playground or a space for people to enjoy and like take your food outside and eat it. Um, a full service deli or some sort of prepared food area where some of that stuff could be healthy, right? It's not always, has, doesn't always have to be French fries and chicken nuggets and stuff like that, but like, I don't know, kale salad or some of those other healthy options for people to, to maybe take outside that grocery store and maybe there's a small park space nearby or something they can do. And so, you know, thinking about too, if it is going to be a big parking lot, could we once in a while on like a, uh, a time when the grocery store is not very busy, like let's say a Saturday night from eight, seven to nine, maybe there could be live music or there could be food trucks that come in and like create a space that's community focused rather than it being just a grocery store all the time. I think that that to me is also an exciting opportunity that we don't talk enough about, but I hope um, if I plant it, hopefully in Councilwoman Nice's year, maybe someone will make it happen. So they'll just like go along this train a little bit further. So from the planning perspective, this idea of like grocery, grocers being able to be like community hubs, what is like the, is that something that we see in other communities or is just something that is more like in theory than in practice up to this point? Uh, it is mostly in theory right now. Uh, I, I will tell you that there are a number of smaller grocers, uh, co-op grocers across the country that really create a sort of community atmosphere, right? Oftentimes inside they'll have like a sit-down bar for people to sit and eat and commune, coffee shops inside or next door. Uh, they'll often have gardens to sit in to eat the food or to appreciate the food. Um, but I think the larger grocers have a long way to go to catch up. Um, I think the connection in that community with these two stores and the Restore OKC group is going to be crucial because that group, to me, I work with them and they seem to be really interested in making sure that it's not just about food. And so I think thinking outside the box a little bit, if we can get that grocery store in, hopefully we can then work with them to say, this other stuff could be going on. We need, you know, I immediately think, Xavier, and from my perspective, is there going to be a bus stop nearby the grocery store? Is there gonna be sidewalks that actually lead from the community into the grocery store? Um, might there be the opportunity for um, there to be like a, a coffee shop in the grocery store? Like things that people are wanting, juice bar, right? Making it into a space that isn't just going for groceries on Saturday with your mom, but it becomes a space that might be interesting for other purposes. And then connecting it to the community in ways that are, I think, uh, health promoting, really important. Okay, so I want to loop back to something you said earlier, this idea of food sovereignty. So the question I sort of have is twofold. Uh, what is like an idealized community, 
like if, if there's a gold standard of like what food access in the food environment looks like and what would you say the steps are for Northeast Oklahoma City to get to that sort of idealized form in terms of having accessibility in a good food environment? Yeah, yeah. It's a really good question. Uh, food sovereignty is a, a complicated and yet also really easy concept in my mind, right? It's, it's easy to think about because it's really putting into place, Xavier, the policies that will allow the community to be free to make their own food choices, right? Allowing the community to say, we don't want more dollar stores. We don't want more fast food. We want a grocery store. Um, we're a long way from that. And I think that this community has fought tooth and nail to, to make sure that people heard and understood that the grocery store was the first step. Real food sovereignty, and I'm going to start to be a little utopian here because I have fantasies of what that might look like. Um, but you begin to imagine, you know, housing built around gardens. And so you would have like a donut of houses in the middle would be a garden that those people could all come together and share. So that when you walk outside of your house in the morning and you want a tomato, there's one there for you to get. Or if you want to come out and there's okra and you can share it with your family or cook it for your neighbors. I think a next step is, you know, shared kitchen spaces for people where, uh, you know, there are some really, uh, in America, there are some great precedents of thinking about shared kitchen spaces where there were proposals back in the last turn of the century for, uh, particularly for immigrant families living in dense cities to share kitchen spaces so that the women could also share child rearing responsibilities. And we live in a place now where it's not, you know, parenting is not defined by gender that way, but you could begin to imagine a sort of very social supporting uh, system where food is a part of that. Right, where we're not just saying housing is over here, food is over here, but it all becomes part of a picture together, right? So it's all being developed at the same time. The way, if you look at Northeast Oklahoma City or almost any city right now, we break land uses up. And so residential will be on one side, commercial will be on the other, and industrial will be way off over here to the side because residential communities don't often like the harassment or the problems that come with commercial space, right? It's people up at all hours, parking, uh, litter, all that stuff. But we're learning that in many ways, better planning, better design is making sure that we see mixed use communities. And I think food and people being able to get that food needs to be a part of that conversation. And that to me is moving to a level of food sovereignty. Oklahoma City as a next step, I'm hoping, I've been talking about this for probably five years, really should be thinking about a food policy council, a group of people who can come together to troubleshoot and think about what is our next move as a city to really help neighborhoods achieve some level of food sovereignty. Um, the last comprehensive plan the city approved uh, had food in it, right? That's a huge step for a place like Oklahoma City to say, we want food to be a part of our planning. And now I think we need to move it into action. How do we actually get communities on board to think about what they want it to look like, right? Because I, I would love to come in and say, you need a farmer's market, but not every community wants a farmer's market. So starting a conversation with these places, these neighborhoods about what is it they see the future of food being for them. I mean, there might be communities where they really enjoy having all their food brought in. And I'm not the one who's gonna come and tell them that it should be different. And so maybe they then get to live a life where they rely on Texas and California for their food. But I, I wanna make sure that those communities that, that want a different future have the opportunity to have that conversation with politicians who can make that change happen. So you're touching a lot on this, like the importance of food. And like, I think oftentimes we take for granted the accessibility to food. So when it comes to like this idea of building community 
and like the, the dialogue around food, why is it that you think that like it's often just taken for granted that healthy options are there for people? And additionally, like what is the importance of having that access and building community, just being able to like, like you say, have that, if there's, if there's a garden out there, you can take the tomato. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think, uh, so Xavier, I think the first question is a complicated one, but a really good one. I think part of the problem uh, that I've encountered and some of the things that I've called people out on in Oklahoma City is that they think that because there's, there's food drivable, that's enough. And that's one future I see for America, but I think there's an alternative future that doesn't always involve the car. And so I, I often tell people like, and I think that's complicated by the fact that also the people leading the conversation are usually white folks who also know that in their neighborhood, they have a grocery store. And so they can't imagine living in a place where that's not their reality. And so they come at it like, oh, I didn't know there wasn't a grocery store there. So I think that's uh, one piece of the sort of complication that we have. But I really encountered a lot of folks when this whole conversation around the grocery stores was coming in. I was in a public meeting actually where a woman said, why don't the people there just drive to a different grocery store? And that to me is so uh, backward thinking uh, to assume that you know everyone wants to get in a car to drive to get food. And I think we have many other options out there for, for changing that conversation and making sure that everyone has access. In terms of uh, sort of the local food communities and sort of how people are doing uh, with like foraging and using public right of ways to, to grow food that can be shared, I see a lot of it going on. Uh, places that are able to do, to grow food, places in Southern California, there's a, there was a big move not long ago to uh, secure all the public land underneath electric wires that go through the city for farming, which opened up tons of land in low-income communities, which is where usually where the power lines run through, to grow food collectively. And I think in many cases, they've come up with different governance systems, sometimes sharing, sometimes you'll get a plot that's your own. But most of my friends who work in those kinds of environments say that the food sharing is natural because you'll get you know, 60 tomatoes in one day and you just can't eat it at all. And so in a weird way, it actually encourages sharing, right? Which I think isn't a bad thing in America right now, <laughs> given sort of where we are. And so food can become this thing where like, oh yeah, I got 60 tomatoes and you had 60 cucumbers, let's swap some of that stuff. And I think it just happens because otherwise it will go to waste. And so I think the more we can think about collective food growing, uh, utilizing those under uh, performing spaces, vacant lots um, for this kind of uh, food, I think is really interesting. And oftentimes you find people without us being involved, I don't need to be there, will come together and start to, to form groups that we're growing food. And it will really take off. And oftentimes I see one person who's like this sort of leader who really makes it happen. A little bit like Councilwoman Nice doing her thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Un under this idea of like urban planning and design, where would you say that like, we talked about like ideally where we would like grocery stores to be in that, but as they said, where do like grocery stores sit in the hierarchy of where it comes to like, when it comes to design and planning, what is what is the role that grocery stores play in that approach? Yeah, um, not enough. Uh, I am, there are a few of us in the country who are focused on grocery stores and we even get pushback from other people who do food systems planning to tell, I get told all the time, grocery stores are not important. Um, 
I don't meet folks in the design world who think a lot about them. When I talk to, for instance, I get interior design students sometimes in the field that I work, and they oftentimes don't know what they should be doing in regards to food systems planning. I said, have you been in a grocery store lately? And as soon as I say that, they start thinking and they go, yeah, it's not a very pleasant space. I'm like, no, it's all bright lights, really high ceilings, just rows of stuff. There's nothing in there that says health. And, and so I think start opening, just cracking open that conversation to think about this place that we call a healthy environment uh, that we don't often really design to be healthy. And so I talk to my students, particularly from interior design to say, what if we put the vegetables and fruit at the front of the store? What if that's the first thing you walked in on? Wouldn't that change the vibe of the grocery store a lot? And you know, if you go, I'm, I'm gonna use an example here, Xavier, but if you go to some of the nice stores up in Edmond, uh, the fruit and vegetables is what you get when you walk in first. <laughs> and, and so I think even those small changes in the way we think about food can really have an impact. I think too, we don't, um, because for so long we've allowed the market to drive the placement of grocery stores, very few planners feel like they can tell grocery stores what we want them to do. And I think that I don't, I don't wanna push our power, but I think we could be doing more. You know, um, there are in some places in the country, new ideas of zoning where, they, where they'll basically put a, a zoning layer over top of what's existing already to say, this is a healthy zone. I think we should be doing that in Oklahoma City to say, this is a place where we don't have enough healthy resources. The next time some healthy, thing comes to town, we want to try and get it there and start to work with them to figure out what are the tax breaks, what are the uh, financial incentives we can use. We do this with things like uh, sports stadiums all the time. We paid millions of dollars to get the Thunder Stadium all up and running and going. We don't do that with things like grocery stores, right? And we should. We should be thinking about um, how do we incentivize grocery stores? How do we incentivize positive things, as well as these big economic engines that happen in the city. So again, you're just right on the target with my next idea. <laughs> so when it comes to this idea of like the zoning and incentivizing, what would you say is like the relationship as it stands between like public policy and food security? Um, it's different depending on where you are. I think uh, some of our larger, more progressive cities are doing some really remarkable stuff. You can look at um, the food systems plan or food com health component of Los Angeles right now is really remarkable. But even uh, some of those pieces aren't really well thought out. For instance, you know they want a, a grocery store or food source within every, I think it's every half mile. Um, even in my own work, I realized that there are some cases where that's too close, right? And we don't want to close out one grocery store while letting, it, you know, they'll start to compete with each other in bad ways. And so we have to be really mindful of what is the reality of the economics along with what is the land use. And um, the land use challenges are real. Um, the biggest one that I see happening right now is that we have done a really good job of, as I mentioned before, segregating resident, residential neighborhoods. So for instance, if you look at the, the donut, I call it the 235, 35, 44, and 40, capital area, um, a lot of that neighborhood is residential land use. You can't just drop a grocery store in a residential community. And so we need to start thinking about where, right, where is the appropriate location for a grocery store when we're trying to reach this neighborhood? Because they're not going to want that grocery store right in the middle, even though I may want it right in the middle. And so being thoughtful about what is the best location to cover the most people, 
How do we think about how transit interacts, right? I know that we don't have the greatest transit system in Oklahoma City, it's small, but as we grow it, and I think there's plans to grow it, right? I hear all the time about wanting to make a better system. We wanna make sure that it goes to places like grocery stores. How do we make sure there's a stop located that connects people to the neighborhoods they need to be in? Um, and so those kinds of things I think are a, a broader discussion about how we bring food to folks and deal with some of the zoning problems we have. But um, it's, it's always gonna be a challenge. Mixed use is one of the new models that we're seeing where, yeah, like I said, there's a grocery store on the bottom and then housing on top. Um, that helps to, to integrate that more into the urban fabric as well. And then I think beyond the grocery stores, the growing of food um, is uh, the next really cool thing I think going on, right? We have in Oklahoma City, a lot of abandoned industrial space, a lot of it in this neighborhood that we're talking about. And I think some of that stuff could start to become job creating agricultural uses, right? We're growing food inside. Um, I think we could start to think about how do we move food from outside where the climate change and the environment here in Oklahoma makes it challenging into an indoor space where we could, you know, I, I fantasize that someday we'll have bananas growing here I, <laughs> after my lifetime. But I think we could start to think too about how do some of those agricultural land uses come into the city in a building? Okay, uh, starting to shift here, just yeah. to the wrap up area. I can't, we can't have a conversation about food without me asking, what is your favorite food or favorite <laughs> meal? Uh, so Xavier, I, we, uh, my spouse uh, lived in Paris, France for five years and I would go back and forth. And so I ate really, I ate some really incredible food. Um, I am uh, probably my favorite food in the entire world, I would have to say is probably bread products. I love bread, uh, any form, any shape, any type. Um, but uh, I've been pleasantly surprised with the food of the, of the plains. I had never really lived here before. And uh, I'm learning to really appreciate some of the sort of Middle America foods, love okra. Didn't didn't know. <laughs> uh, my father grew up in Arkansas, and so he had had okra as a child. And he's like, "Oh my god, I love okra!" And I was like, "I've never had okra before." And moved here. The plant is really beautiful, and I like the food. And so I I I will I will honestly, Xavier, eat almost anything. I really I I, I will sample anything, and then I will let you know if I do or don't like it. But I I've. Only really liver is one of the only things I will not eat, but otherwise I, I love food um, and have been uh, trying to explore before the pandemic as many restaurants in Oklahoma as I possibly could. I have not had uh, chicken fried steak yet, which I'm, I've been told is like the thing, so. <laughs> Oklahoma has a really underrated food scene, but yes, uh... My mother's from California, so like I got in, but her whole family's from Louisiana, so I've got introduced to a lot of foods. But I would, but I would say that country fried steak is one of the the one of the mainstays of the Oklahoma diet, as you will. Yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah. nevertheless, I digress. The last question I have for you here today is: What is the future of food, Doctor Ari, in your opinion? Yeah, Xavier, I get pushed back on this too. I really think we're going to be growing food inside. Uh, I know people uh, like to, I, there's a whole bunch of folks out there who have this romantic notion of the farmer on the land with like the pitchfork and the wife and the pig and the cow. I want to totally support that, but there have been so many federal policies here in the United States that have whittled away at those kinds of folks. I come from those people. I, I, my family owned a small family farm in Michigan. It was basically closed down in the 80s by bad policies, federal policies that 
lifted up big farms and put small farms down. Um, I meet really nice uh, Oklahomans all the time who are growing food outside. They're fabulous people. I just don't know if on the scale of what I imagine, that's gonna be enough. I hope it is, I really do. But I also want us to be mindful of climate change. I think we're reaching a point that is really problematic in terms of um, how we control the environment outside to grow the kinds of vegetables that we need if we wanna do it locally. And you know, living here in Oklahoma, our seasons are really bizarre. Our soil is really unhealthy. And so, I, I, I I remember when I first met, uh, I think, Councilwoman Nice and the folks from her store, I was like, I imagine just outside Oklahoma, just rows of greenhouses, right? Just growing stuff that we can eat. And so I think there's going to be a fine balance between the two. Um, and thinking about that, I, I don't know if we're going to have like skyscrapers in Oklahoma City, but I could really see a future where if we want strawberries that taste good and we can have them really almost year round, they're going to have to be grown inside. If we want tomatoes year round, they're going to have to be probably grown inside. Um, there are some things that we just can't grow outside here year round. And I think that um, in order to break us from the constant shipping of food from other places, my fantasy is that we start to think about how do we do that here and talk to people. Oklahoma State is our ag school. Right, start to tease out what can we be growing outside on farmland and what do we need to be growing inside and have a real conversation about that without the, the emotional connection to some old farming mentality. Like I, I, I don't want to say goodbye to those folks, but we need to be real about feeding all the people that we have, feeding them healthfully and making sure that people can get the kind of diet that, that I imagine they can have. And so I'm, I'm very open. Um, I hope that we can start this conversation soon because I, I, I don't want us to get past the point where like we push all the agricultural land in Oklahoma City out the way we have in places like New York and LA um, and start to think about like, can small neighborhoods have a, a ranch? Could they have cattle that they slaughter for themselves, right? I mean, these are big questions and they're pushing really hard, but that's where I, that's my fantasy. And so I'll, I'll leave you with that. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Lowry. Uh, this has been Xavier Roan and Aaron McKnight for the o Northeast Oklahoma City Think Tank podcast. Thank you.